welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everybody, I want to take a quick minute to tell you something that I'm really excited about. I've recently teamed up with Hitched Inc., one of the biggest and fastest growing tech startups in oil and gas. You've probably seen them all over LinkedIn. From generators to light towers, pumps to forklifts, use Hitch to pair your company with reliable rental suppliers and eliminate the hassle of logistics through the use of an in-app platform. Hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to schedule a demo. All right. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here at the Canon with Randy Stilly, CEO of EFRAC Well Services. Randy, how you doing this lovely Friday? I'm doing great. Good, good. It's a little crisp out there, but I like the sunshine. What about you? You know, I do. It, it's a big change from last week. Even though I was out of town last week, I was kind of glad to see it get better. I hear you. Traveling for work or what? Actually on vacation. Wow. Congrats. That's, <laughs> I like how you start 2020 with a vacation. That's the way to do it. Well, you got to take it when you have time. Hey, isn't that the truth? And especially in the oil field, you, you take what you can get when you get it. That's right. So I'm excited to have someone on here to talk about fracking and especially e-fracking. It's something I've heard about, but really not very familiar. Most of my experiences, you know, on the drilling side of things, but I actually have a good friend up in Denver who started up his own frac company called Rev Energy Services. And so, but it's definitely not on the e-frac side. It's more of the conventional stuff. But again, it's, you know, and hopefully the listeners are prepared for the amount of knowledge that's going to be shared. Just for context, you worked for Halliburton from, you know, starting, I think in 1976, ending up as vice president in 1997. Is that right? That's correct. Wow. And then followed by several positions, including president and CEO of Hercules Offshore, which anyone who's even got had their hands in the offshore world totally, you know, I'm sure under, know who Hercules is. And then, you know, same positions with Paragon Offshore, right? Just to name a couple. So, so you've been around. I've been around for a, quite a while, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, and bless your heart for staying committed to the oil field after, you know, several ups and downs that I'm sure you've experienced. Well, you know, it's a great industry. The people are, are fun to work with. The challenges are always there, but it's an industry that once you get in, it's hard to get out. It is. So why do you keep punishing yourself with oil and gas? I'm sure it's, I would imagine, and this is just me being making assumptions, but you're probably in a position where you, you don't have to keep doing what you're doing, but what drives you to keep pushing yourself? And, and now, you know, within the last, you know, few years getting into, you know, the frack business, like what, what drives you to do stuff like this? Well, I think it's it's mainly I just really like the industry. Okay. And, you know, I spent the first 22 years of my career at Halliburton. I ran Halliburton's pressure pumping business when I was there. Wow. And that was quite a while ago, actually. Yeah. And so to get back into that end of things in the oil field is kind of fun. And to do it with some new technology is even better. Most definitely. So why or when did this all start? How did you even get into the oil field? You know, when I got out of school, I had a degree in aerospace engineering. Okay. It wasn't a great time in the aerospace industry, and I had a choice if I could either move to the West Coast or I could go to work for some company in the oil field and stay in Texas. So mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I'll stay in Texas. Okay. And University of Texas? University of Texas. Okay. So you're, are you from Texas then? I am. Okay. Most definitely. Which part? I grew up in North Texas. Okay. Interesting. So like North Texas as in like Fort Worth, Dallas, or are you talking uh, Panhandle? Actually, actually north of there. Okay. Uh, a little town in Nocona. Right in between Gainesville and Wichita Falls. Yes. Okay. I'm familiar. I've driven through there yeah, that, quite a few times. You probably almost missed it if you drove through there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That, 
You're absolutely right. So you've experienced several downturns, more than I hope to endure. What was it like going through the 80s? If you, you know, I'm sure you remember back then seeing oil go from, you know, 20 some dollars a barrel all the way up to 115 then back down to 30. What was that like? And how would you compare that to what we're sort of experiencing, you know, over the last, say, six years now? You know, the downturn in the, in the mid-80s was bad. Yeah. No question. Way too much overcapacity in the industry generally and just about everything you can imagine. Hmm. And when the bottom fell out of oil prices, there were just massive layoffs everywhere. But I will say this. I think the, this last downturn in some ways has been more painful. Okay. Uh, How so? Because we had a lot of people just entering the industry before it occurred. Hmm. Uh, they didn't have a lot of time in the industry. It was new to them. I think a lot of them ex- didn't really understand the cyclicality of the oil and gas business. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I think it's been really tough on a lot of people to deal with what we've gone through uh, is essentially a very prolonged downturn. Right, right. So what was the biggest lesson learned from the one that you experienced back then or any downturn? And how have you applied that to the one that we've just experienced? Well, you know, I think certainly as a manager, you need to understand that you can't manage for the upside. Mm. You had in this business, you have to think about a mid cycle, you know, not, not the very bottom because nobody wants to manage toward that, but you need to think about mid cycle activity levels. You need to get your balance sheet in shape so that you can deal with downturns. debt is a killer in this business. And every time business gets good, everybody wants to lever up their business. You have investors telling you, put on more debt, put on more debt. Because they think that jacks up their returns. Right. But it's a bad financial play in the long term. It is. And actually, I had the luxury of sitting with Mr. Dan Pickering this week to talk about today's market. And, you know, their biggest, I guess, model right now is value over volume. And I think a lot of people, not only on the EMP side, but on the service side are seeing that as well. And then there's a big shift in the way people are doing business. Is, is that something that relates to you and what you're doing right now? It certainly does. And in fact, I think the entire industry needs to think about returns and value and not just think about growth. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't get a good return on your investment, you're not going to last long term. And this has been a business that for a long time has been geared toward growth at the expense of everything else. Mm-hmm. It's, been, it's been good for consumers. Right. But not good for oil companies and not good for service companies. No kidding. Would you say, and being that you're on the frack side, you're tied in pretty, you know, pretty closely to the completions, which is obviously a frack, you know, in a nutshell, but would you say we're close to peak oil production within the U.S.? You know, we might be, but I doubt it. Doubt it. You know, it really depends on supply, demand, and the price. Yeah. And, you know, if the price is high enough and people can make money, you're going to see a lot more drilling. Yep. It's just the way it is. If the demand is there, I think there's actually more capacity in the U.S. than we have today. Now, it's, it's not easy. And the unconventional plays that have actually fueled this entire resurgence in the U.S. as far as production, it's a tough business. Yeah. No, I can certainly identify with you there. Well, we're here to talk today to obviously, you know, kind of pull some wisdom from you, but also to tell the story behind EFRAC Well Services. Tell us, you know, how did you get into that and, and what do you guys offer to the marketplace? Okay. About a year and a half ago, my colleague and I were just kind of kicking around, kicking tires, looking at disruptive technologies, you know, two former CEOs with time on their hands, basically. <laughs> right. Uh, we were looking for, you know, disruptive technologies in the oil field that we thought might be interesting. And, you know, we happened on to several things, but one of the things that kind of resonated with me personally was this whole concept of EFRAC. Okay. Why is that? 
The reason being is if you think about what we do in the oil field, the most energy disruptive part of the business is a frack job. You think about it, you get out there, you're going to burn more energy doing frack jobs than anything else from drilling, completion, or production, you name it. That one period of time is when you consume tons of energy, basically. Mm-hmm. And right now, it's mainly done with diesel-powered engines. So right. you get out there, and you'll have you know frack trucks lined up as far as you can see. Mm-hmm. They're having to refuel them during the jobs. You know, they're burning, you know, an unbelievable amount of diesel every day because, you know, trying to get more efficient, you know, people are operating, you know, probably at least 18 hours a day now, sometimes more than that. Right. And so it's running almost 24 hours a day. Well, if you think about it, diesel engines and transmissions are fine, but they're not the most efficient way to do things. You know, we converted all the drilling rigs worldwide practically to electric years ago, Mm -hmm. whether it was offshore, onshore, doesn't matter. They're all electric. So why did we take something that actually consumes a lot more power, like a frack job, and why is it still diesel-powered? Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Well, to me, I said, you know, there's got to be a better way. Uh, There were a couple of small companies already in business providing electric frack services, you know, with pretty good results, but, you know, some growing pains. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking around at some technology that was available in various places and teamed up with some technology partners that, that I thought were interesting and started putting together a business plan that it might actually work. Hmm. And it's kind of interesting. One of our technology partners is just down the road from here, Lime Instruments. Okay, uh, yeah. You know, they've helped us on that as well. Uh, they're electrical guys, yeah. and you know, they're developing all the controls and automation for the equipment. And so it's been helpful to have people like that to work with. No kidding. So you said you kind of, so would you say you looked outside of just your conventional technologies? Like you said, you went to some folks like Lime. Was there anything else that you stumbled upon that kind of really opened your eyes to say like, hey, you know, there was a pivotal point to say, I think we can really do this. Well, I think it, it really came down to talking to a lot of EMP customers. Sure. You know, senior executives at a lot of oil companies and their big concerns are cost, efficiency, emissions, all the things that we can do better with electric frack. Mm. So, you know, I'll give you an example. A typical frack crew, if we're burning fuel gas instead of diesel, which is what we use to generate our electricity, saves that customer for one frack crew, typically about a million dollars a month in fuel cost. So that's just one frack crew operating year round. That's a $12 million savings. No kidding. Wow. And we're burning gas. Right. So our emissions are 99% less when we run those things through gas turbines. Mm -hmm. It's good for the environment. You can walk around on location without hearing protection. Yeah, no kidding. Because you don't have those big diesel engines blaring all the time. It's quieter than the air conditioner next to your house. That's insane. Okay. So like I've never, I mean, I've been on you know, drilling rigs that, you know, back in the day working on an old, you know, this is, I mean, it wasn't that old, but back in 2004, this was a conventional Kelly rig, you know, it was loud and obnoxious. And then, well, you know, as a mud engineer going on to some rigs that were electric, it was, it was almost weary not hearing, you know, just the amount of loud noise that, you know, that I was used to. And I can imagine, especially on a frack job with the amount of equipment and amount of engines running. Yeah. That in itself obviously adds value but like many technologies that, you know, increase the industry's ability to be cost effective, it often comes with a higher acquisition cost. So have you experienced that as a challenge to, to pick up market share? Is that something that you guys are experiencing? 
Well, yes and no. You know, what we've done is our design is based on being very cost efficient. Mm-hmm. So we, we're using components that are cost effective. And yeah, the, the upfront capital cost is slightly higher. But if you exclude the price of the, the gas turbines and, and the electric generators, and you just look at the equipment itself and say, okay, that electricity is just fuel. Right. Look at the, you look at the pumps and the blenders and all that kind of stuff. It's actually a little bit cheaper than conventional. Interesting. Okay. Is that pretty easy to relay to most folks? It is and it isn't. But I think the other thing that's interesting to note is that even if it was higher, it would make sense because the cost of ownership over time is so much less. Mm-hmm. You know, a conventional fleet of equipment, you're going to have to probably rebuild every three or four years. Okay. Our equipment, you know, electric motors, variable speed drives, stuff like that, those are 20 year assets. Right. Huh. And, you know, I would assume supply chain folks like to hear that, too, the total cost of ownership. That's that's something that often, you know, kind of unless looking at it, you know, from a macro level, most people don't take that into consideration. And so that's important to relay. I mean, are there any other challenges that you faced in today's market with regards to, you know, just the demand on the frac side? Just because I hear you know, from the outside looking in, not being involved with the frac side of things, is that there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines on the frac side of it. What Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's a tough market right now because there's too much capacity and not enough demand. You know, the industry way overbuilt frac capacity over the past five years. Mm. Some people are starting to take that out. You know, there have been, you know, millions of hydraulic horsepower that have come out of the market over the past year, mm-hmm. mostly because it wasn't profitable to rebuild that equipment. Gotcha. It was worn out. Like I said, you know, about every about every three years, the stuff's worn out because we're working it so hard now compared to what we did before, which again makes sense to go to electric. But there's so much capacity out there, it's difficult. And and you know, there are people out there that are still working at pricing that doesn't generate any cash just to stay in business. Right, but that's not sustainable. No, it? it's not. And I think we're beginning to reach a tipping point with the amount of capacity coming out of the market. The attrition is starting to increase. Yeah. And my guess is at some point, and I'm, and I'm not going to predict the timing, but I think someday, maybe even before the end of this year, you're going to see a supply deficit again. Wow. Which, I mean, would that be a good thing for you guys? It'd be good for us because, you know, it's hard to get people to try new things. Yeah. This is an industry that's risk averse. For sure. And the fact that, yeah, it's still frack pumps and we're just powering them with electric motors and variable speed drives and we're using gas turbines to generate electricity. I mean, that's not new technology. Right. It's just new to the oil field. Right. Would you say that, you know, have you seen a shift in that mindset, especially throughout the downturn where a lot of the experienced and older generation, you know, decided to hang them up? You've got a lot of the younger generation coming up. And now, you know, the folks back then just getting out of school, you know, three, four years later are now in positions of decision making. Are you seeing that risk adverse mindset shift a little bit? It's shifting a little. The problem with that is they're still really just focused on one thing, cost. (laughs) Right. You know, and until people start to think about, okay, are there better ways to do things? And it's not just cost it's tough to get them to try new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for instance, they, they view it risky to put an electric frack crew on location if they hadn't been using one Yeah, because they're not used to having to get gas to location before the frack jobs. And if they don't do that, they don't get the savings. So it requires more planning. It requires them to do their business differently and they have to actually believe that the technology is better. Right, right. No, that's true. And relaying that story and having data points that prove that is often challenging, especially if people aren't, you know, willing to try it just initially. So 
what would you say? I mean, there's obviously a lot of upside and there's a huge prize going with EFRAC. Why hasn't everyone done it? It's just because there's so much equipment out there and so much horsepower that's maybe been paid for or maybe close to being paid off or what? That's it exactly. You know, if you think about it, even the, the really large service companies like Halliburton have a huge install base. Now, Halliburton has, I think, you know, maybe one or two electric frack crews that they're experimenting with. Mm-hmm. But again, they're not moving into it in a big way because it's not capital efficient for them to do right, that right now because they've got such a huge install base of conventional equipment. Sure. You know, they'll get there eventually. And with customer demand, if it goes up, then they'll start to respond to that. But it's a situation right now where there is so much conventional equipment that's already paid for, basically. And if you start replacing that with something better, it has no value anymore. Mm-hmm. It just, it'll increase the attrition. Right, right. That makes sense. So how, now explain for the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with just the mechanics behind it. When you say electric fracking, you know, using electricity instead of, you know, diesel powered engines and stuff like that, where does this electricity come from? Like in, on a very general basis. Okay. So what we do, we take fuel gas. Mm-hmm. And if we need to clean it up, maybe strip out some of the liquids, things like that, we do that. Mm-hmm. We pipe that to big gas turbines, basically aircraft engines. Okay. That have electric generators attached to them. We generate electricity. We run a cable from those generators to our to our frack pumps, and then we power the electric motors with that. Gotcha. I mean that that explains it very simply. And and kind of you know backing up to the to early part of that process, it still requires hydrocarbons. It does. Okay. So it's, it's not something that's saying we're going electric and now we don't need oil or gas. It's, you know, the feedstock obviously is, is what powers the electricity. Yeah. And the nice thing is about we're using natural gas. Yeah. Which we have a lot. We we have too much. (laughs) And so it's, it's not expensive. Right. And if you look at the BTU value of natural gas, it's so much higher than diesel. Yes. So that's the reason I say, if you assume that the gas costs you $1.50, $2, that's probably optimistic. Because it really doesn't cost the operator that much. You know, maybe he pays royalties on it and whatever. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's not actually having to buy the gas. Right, right. But assume it costs that much. And assume diesel is, I don't know, $2, $2.50, something like that. At that ratio, a typical operator operating 17, 18 hours a day, a frat crew, will save over a million dollars a month in fuel. Wow. That's, that's hard to pass up. It is. Yeah. And the environmental benefits. So they're not having to flare the gas. They're actually burning the gas in a very efficient way so that emissions are very low. Mm-hmm. It's just a win-win. I think that really what we're likely going to see over the next five to ten years is the electrification of the oil field. Yes. It's not going to just be frack jobs. It's not going to just be drilling. It's not going to just be completion. It's going to be everything from start to finish. Mm-hmm. No, I certainly agree with that. So what would you say, you know, obviously there's the savings are there. The environmental aspect is there. Is there any else from a technology standpoint on, on the completion side that you're excited about that's coming down the pipeline that may be not you know cost effective for the market but is there anything else i mean that's a huge leap already but is there anything else that you know completion side to look forward to yeah i, th- I think the one thing we're beginning to see now people are getting away from the cookie cutter approach to completions okay they're actually going to start to do some analysis they're trying to understand what causes frack hits. Mm. They're trying to understand how to optimize the frack jobs on location, utilizing the information that you're gathering during the job, 
And I think we're going to see a much more engineered approach to completions generally that will eventually make it more efficient, reduce the overall cost, and increase production. Right. So why would you say that hasn't been done historically? Or maybe- uh, I think it's just a lack of knowledge and the idea initially that just bigger is better. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you pump more stages, you put more sand in the ground, the more you do, the better it's got to be. If you shrink your spacing down, you're going to produce more oil. Well, what they're beginning to find out is there's an optimal spacing, there's an optimal job size, there's an optimum amount of sand that you put in a well. Yeah. And it's not just cram a bunch of stuff in, down hole and hope it works. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we did lose a lot of knowledge in the industry over the past 10 or 15 years. Right. And back in the days when people actually did analysis on frack jobs and tried to engineer their completions, those are kind of long gone. Hmm. And we're beginning to see a few companies come back and start doing that again. You know, Conoco is a good example. They've done a big study in the Eagleford in South Texas, and they think they found a better way to frack the wells and complete them. Mm. based on a lot of analysis and data gathering that they've been doing over the past few years. Right. So I think you're going to see other companies that are doing the same thing. I gotcha. So other than Conoco, are there others that are sort of leading the pack with this kind of approach and maybe going more towards the sort of electric, more efficient type of do, way of doing things? Well, you know, interestingly, Conoco didn't have an electric frat crew. Okay. <laughs> So, right. so I think, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, it's, it's pockets of activity. There, gotcha. there are some companies that have been very focused on efficiency and cost and like EOG resources. They probably have more electric crews than anybody else right now. Okay. And because they've had such a focus on cost and efficiency. Yes. You've got other companies like Conoco that have focused on the completion technology, mm. but haven't done much with electric yet. Sure. So I think, you know, there's uh, the industry is still kind of learning how to deal with this and it's turning into not just a game of scale. Although that, that's a big part of it. And the majors are going to dominate the unconventional plays in the future. Yeah. But it's also going to be smart completions going forward. Sure, sure. What excites you the most more from, you know, the company that obviously you're running? What's the most exciting part of it right now that you're, that you're going through? I'd say the most exciting part thing is that, you know, we know that we've developed something that's better. We can get on location and operate with a much smaller crew, mm-hmm. a smaller footprint, cheaper for the customer, more efficient, less maintenance cost. Yeah. I mean, there's just nothing really bad about it. Sure. Except the idea that it's new. Right. So we just got to get rid of all that old iron and, and come in with the new and improve and, That's right. and continue to do so and, and scale up. And the old stuff's going to get worn out. I don't think you're going to see too many people building new conventional equipment Okay. That was actually going to be one of my questions is, you know, and, and, and you may not be able to answer it, but from a percentage wise of new equipment that's being built, which I don't even see the demand being there, but it sounds to me like most people, if they're kicking off a project and starting something new, that would more than likely be the direction that they're going to go. You would think so. But the, you know, the, the, the problem with that is, you know, companies that are committed to conventional fracks are probably going to keep doing that, at least for the time being. Mm. It's hard to mix those two. Right. Excuse my ignorance, but are you guys first to market with the EFRAC stuff? No, we're, we're actually, a, I'd say, a fast follower. Okay. Evolution Well Services and U.S. Well Services were the first two out there. Okay. And they've, you know, I don't remember exactly how many crews they've got, but they've probably got a handful each. Sure. And they've done a good job in preparing the market. They've done a good job of working out some of the kinks because they both had some problems early on, but they worked through it. Yeah. And I think we've taken advantage of what they did good and what they did bad. 
yep. and applied that to our designs and our technology. And that's a good strategic approach for sure. And every anyone who's you know, first to jump in certainly has, you know, challenges and just like we all do, but folks like yourself or whoever can, you know, capitalize on, on the learnings and apply them to what you're doing. It just heart, helps the whole ecosystem. It and does. so, you know, I applaud you guys for, for taking that leap of faith. And, you know, it's, it's certainly something that's exciting. There's a lot of changes happening within the oil field and it sounds like you guys are, are there contributing to that, which again, I applaud you guys. A couple of questions I have more on the personal side of things outside of work, do you have any daily habits or routines that keep you focused and, and motivated? Obviously as CEO, you've, you know, from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, it's, it's work, work, work. You're getting emails, phone calls, you know, just, just trying to run and, and steer the ship. But what do you do on a daily basis that kind of helps you unplug? You know, I get up every morning and get ready and I go to the gym. Okay. Good. Uh, and you know, that kind of starts off my day. Gotcha. And then there's usually meetings and phone calls and this, that, and the other after that. Yeah. But I think that's a big part of it, of having a routine that, that you can stay in. Sure. And the other thing is, you know, I've got a kind of a period of time that I go through all my emails in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody sends me an email the rest of the day, they may not get it answered till late. Sure. And, you know, anybody that thinks email is instant needs to learn that. <laughs> it's not called instant messaging. That's, right. that's something different. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So I, I think a lot of it is just understanding how to use your time mm. and realizing that it's going to change sometimes. But as much of a routine as you can have for that sort of thing, it's better. Okay. And you can stay on top of things. Nice. Have you always had that mindset or was it something that you had to force yourself into? I, I would say I've pretty much always been that way when I was allowed to. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Well, that's good. I'm, you know, I'm big into, you know, to the health and fitness side of things. And like you, I'm, I'm a morning workout type of person. What kind of, you know, what does a workout typically look like for you? You know, typically for me, it's probably, you know, 30 minutes of cardio and about 30 minutes of weights. Okay, good. A nice mix. Yeah, Something it, to get the blood flowing and, and keep a little muscle mass. That's right. Yeah, no, that's, that's and, perfect. And in my advanced age, that's a good thing. Hey, good for you. <laughs> and, and I, you know, the key to longevity is just moving, you know, moving and, and having a positive mindset, gratification, and just, you know, giving more than you take is, is what I like to say. What's something about yourself that not many people know about? Do you have any, you know, unique hobbies or things you like to do outside of work? Yeah. In the winter, I love to ski. Okay. Fantastic. In fact, that, that's where I was last week. Ah, so nice. I'll, so I'll usually spend at least two or three weeks a year on the ski slopes. Okay. Whereabouts? Colorado, Utah, New Mexico. We're actually going to Canada here in a couple of weeks. Okay. So uh, Which part of Canada? Whistler. Okay. So I grew up in BC. Okay. Yeah. Born in Calgary, raised in BC. So I've been to Whistler, but most of my time was spent at Silver Star yeah. and Big White, okay. which is Kelowna and, right. and Vernon. I miss it. And certainly it's funny because growing up in BC, when I graduated high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my cousin was selling wellheads for FMC. And I said, John, you know, I, w- I want to get a, you know, all I hear is you taking customers out golfing and going on these fancy trips. You got a beautiful home here in Kelowna. I said, I want your job. And he said, yeah. Okay, well, go apply at this company called Precision Drilling, and and then you'll be able to have my job in the next ten years. And so, anyway, I, I ended up, you know, taking that, and because I said, well, I can't afford a boat, and going up to the mountains every every weekend, and all the fun things that you know the interior Okanagan, British Columbia things get to do. And so, I left British Columbia in order to you know make a career and able to go back and take advantage of those things, you know. But I miss the mountains. I miss the fresh water. But good for you, a gentleman from, you know, from Texas going and enjoying the snow. That's, that's great. Are you, so you're a skier, not a snowboarder, right? No, I'm a skier. I've, I've been skiing since I was about six years old. No kidding. So you did your parents take you then? Yeah. Okay. 
And so are your parents from Texas then? They are. Okay. Wow. Good for you guys. Well, one last question I have for everyone. Is there a message you'd like to relay, assuming everyone in the energy industry is listening to right now? Yeah, I would say, you know, just have faith. You know, energy is not dead. Mm -hmm. We're not at peak demand. We're not at peak supply. Sure. And, you know, just stick with it. It's it's a great industry. It's an industry we're going to need for a long time, no matter what happens with everything else, Mm -hmm. as far as alternative sources of energy. And it's an industry that's important. And, but we need to use technology to make it work. Most definitely. Great closing last words. Well, I'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about our upcoming events. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for the next month. We have some exciting things coming up. Two happy hours, one in Pittsburgh and one in Denver. So the first one will be happening on March 22nd at Bubba's Gourmet Burgers and Beer. This event will be from 4 to 7 and will feature a live recording of Oil & Gas This Week with Jake Corley and Mark LaCour. So be sure to check that out. You can sign up via our social medias. We have an Eventbrite sign up and should be good to go from there. The next event will be a happy hour in Denver at Liberty Oilfield Services on April 2nd. Once again, check our social medias for the Eventbrite sign up and sign up there. As some of our social media followers may know, we are headed to Aberdeen, Scotland the first week of March, in a couple days actually, for DokuruCon, creating high-impact sales and energy. Dokuru is excited to launch its very first sales development conference, and OGGN's Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast, so we're really excited to be joining that. The Leaders in Industry Luncheon is on March 11th at the Petroleum Club of Houston, Port of the Future is happening on March 10th and 11th in Houston. Your registration to the Port of the Future conference also allows you access to exclusive events, including TSA Security and Terrorism, Research Showcase, and many more. So be sure to view the agenda and see what they are offering. The Houston Energy Breakfast will be on March 20th at the Norris Conference Center in Houston. The API Energy Houston 3-Gun Chapter will be on March 20th. This event is filling up very quickly, so make sure to get a team in as soon as possible. The BP Energy Outlook 2020 Edition will be on April 21st. It's happening online, and this event is about transitions that will take place to a low-carbon energy system. That's all for this month, everybody. Hope you guys have a good month and check back in next month to see what events we're having. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get into shape over the winter or getting into spring, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Randy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. What's the best way for people to get to know more about the company? I would say, you know, if they want to, they can email me. You know, okay. I'll certainly answer any questions. Fantastic. And if you don't mind, I'll put your link in the, uh, your email in the show notes. You don't okay. have to mention it, but okay. what I'll do is I'll put perhaps your LinkedIn profile and then also your email. Cause if, you know, if people are very interested in this and they can certainly reach out, I visited your website. Uh, yeah. So you, so you saw one. there wasn't much there. Yeah, uh, that's okay. We, we've been focused on building the company, not the website. So. Sure. And, and they, that's important. And I'll, you'll have to excuse me. I thought you, I thought it was a few years, but you guys have only been in business for about a year. That's right. Wow. Okay. So that, 
Yeah, you're. Uh, We're a true startup. Good for you guys. No, that's fantastic. Well, look, then I'll we'll put all that in the show notes, and then if anyone's interested, they can certainly reach out. And everyone out there, always remember: when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil and Gas on Shore, a production of Oil and Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.